Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. If you're constantly on the hunt for a good deal, then you need Rakuten. Rakuten is the smartest way to save money when you shop because members get cash back at over 3,500 stores across every category, including fashion, beauty, electronics, home essentials, traveling, dining, and more. You're already shopping at your favorite stores. Why not save while you're doing it? It's a no-brainer. Get the Rakuten app now and join the 17 million members who are already saving. Cashback rates change daily. See Rakuten.com for details. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Your cashback really adds up. Welcome back to CBS Eye on Veterans. Reporting for ConnectingVets.com, I'm Navy vet and journalist Phil Briggs. Now our next guest is going to share one heck of a book report. The new book is The Unit, the first and only book to ever be written by a member of America's most secret military unit. Inside our military is a team of operators whose work is so secretive that the name of the unit itself is classified. They're highly trained in warfare, self-defense, infiltration, and deep surveillance. And the unit, as the Department of Defense has asked them to refer to it, has been responsible for preventing dozens of terrorist attacks in the Western world. So how does the military even know where our terrorist enemies are? Well, in many cases, it's because of soldiers like Adam Gamal, and we'll hear about it in this book report and the book, The Unit. Now, here to give us the book report is not just any book reviewer, but he's my colleague at Connecting Vets, Jack Murphy. He's a Special Forces veteran, journalist, lover of bourbon and cigars, and frequently <laughs> shares selfies, which we call Autumn Man. When he's traveling around in the crisp autumn breeze in New York City, you can follow Jack Murphy on X for all of his escapades. But with that, let's say hello. Jack Murphy, <laughs> how you doing, buddy? Good, Phil. Thank you, man. Appreciate it. Um, yeah, I mean, it's an interesting book, The Unit by Adam Gamal with Kelly Kennedy. I hope you're able to talk to those two about the book. I'm a stand-in for the time being, and maybe I can say a few things that, you know, the the author wouldn't be able to, so. Yeah, right on. And and that's one of the reasons I wanted to ping you for this interview. Uh, the book just dropped, of course. Your background, I think, is going to be especially keen in sort of looking at some of the cool stories and the things that he was able to say. Let's, before we get into the unit, talk just couple bullet points, your background, you know of all things Joint Special Operations Command firsthand. Uh, you started as an Army Ranger. Tell me a little bit about Jack Murphy. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I don't, I don't know about everything, but I have been in this world directly and indirectly 20 some odd years now. You know, I did eight years in Army Special Operations, starting off in Ranger Battalion and then in Special Forces. Got out, did college, went into journalism, 
And I've been really a, a national security journalist focused on special operations and in the intelligence community. So I do a lot of stories about special forces or special operations history. Yeah, I love it. Uh, you said time in Ranger Battalion. Uh, you were a sniper also? Yeah. Or, or, yeah, you worked the long gun there for a little while. And then you went special forces, which... Mm -hmm. So folks listening know, um, we, when you hear Green Berets, that's special forces, uh, all very elite units of the U.S. Army. And then you, you know, you threw out Delta Force there. I've had Brad Taylor on most recently, whose books I absolutely love, but they're fiction. They're, you know, stories of covert ops that, you know, just as we're on the precipice of nuclear war, the Mike Logan <laughs> and his team sweeps in and takes out the bad guys. But this book, The Unit, is talking about the real world guys just like that. And I kind of bring up first how rare they are. In your time working abroad, did you ever come across guys with this group or? Yeah, yeah. There's actually a really funny story. So this was about 2004 in Afghanistan. And uh, I was a sniper in Ranger Battalion, and we went out doing, you know, some surveillance and potentially a capture mission on the Pakistan border. And so at one point, I found myself up at an observation position up on top of this mountain overlooking the Pakistan border. And up there <laughs> was one American with one Afghan interpreter or translator. And these guys had been up there for I don't know how long. Um, the American seemed like a, a really nice guy, but you could tell he'd been left out there maybe a little bit too long. And he had like he was wearing like a uniform top and jeans, as I recall. Um, and he had like these hemp necklaces on and he was like, just such like a kind of like cool dude, like a hippie kind of like, Hey guys, man, like, thanks for coming out here. You know, if you want to work me into the guard rotation, like no worries, man. You know, it was just like a totally, this guy had a totally different vibe than, you know, us, like a bunch of Rangers with our, you know, most of us short haircuts, the beards and stuff were just like, that was brand new to Ranger battalion. We were just starting to get into that kind of stuff. So as years went by, years later, I never forgot about that experience and that guy running into him on the on the side of this mountain. And whenever I would meet people from this specific unit, I would describe that guy to him, you know, over a coffee in a, in a restaurant or whatever, wherever I'm meeting a, a, a potential source over the years. And I described that guy and they'd look right at me. Their eyebrows would shoot up like, oh, that's Robbie. And they all know exactly who I'm talking about because he's like somebody who's like very well known. Apparently he's kind of um, well respected in the unit as somebody who like kind of really did everything. And as I was reading this book, there's a segment where the author gets assigned to a team and he's in Iraq and his team leader is this guy named Robbie. <laughs> and he describes Robbie like to a T as this like super laid back kind of hippie dude. I was like, that is definitely him. Um, so yeah, that's sort of the, the, the connection. I never served in this unit to be clear. Um, but yeah, that's sort of, you know, where I, I, I crossed paths with, uh, one of these guys overseas. Yeah, that was so cool. I remember seeing on Twitter, you put out like a little a paragraph excerpt 
on it and you had like underlined the one part about Robbie. Yeah, that's Robbie. It it was like this one moment where everything was going sideways. They just checked into their command. They unloaded their gear only to put it down and have to move it somewhere else only to like then put it down again. And then the CO comes in and is like, guys got to suit up. We've got a mission. We got to go. And they just gotten there and they're like the other guys kind of grumbling and I don't want to do this, man. What do you mean? We got to go. And here your buddy Bobby was just like, all right, cool, man. Cool. All right, we'll go. And they said that his demeanor was so California surfer laid back like and his hemp necklaces. And they called him the spider monkey because he would frequently just kind of pop a squat, get down on his haunches and just sort of sit there and wait for the next order or wait you know, for the mission to start. And they're like, you couldn't frazzle this guy. He was just so <laughs> chill. And I, I, one person I talked to a couple of years ago. He had Robbie on his selection course that he went through and 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 Robbie like picked him up in a panel van was like the anonymous contact. You have to meet somewhere and picks him up in a panel van. He was just telling me like Robbie's just talking about like going hiking up in the mountains and oh man, it's so beautiful up in those mountains. And, you know, just put like a six pack of beer in my rucksack and we went up there and drank a few beers, watched the sunset. Well, I got to let you off here, man. Sorry about that. But you know, that's the course. Well, good luck. You know, (laughs) he's just like, yeah, apparently that's how he is all the time. And uh, I would love to sit down and, and and have a beer with Robbie sometime in the future and make that connection again. But he, he just sounds like a, a really fun guy. And especially in the intensity that was the global war on terrorism. Oh, yeah. And still, yeah. you know, ongoing anti-terrorism efforts. I mean, they make men steely-eyed and stiff and stern. And it's just cool to hear about this guy no, that managed the, to be on this team so elite. But yet, the, like, hey, the, bro. The intensity, though, is always there in guys, Rangers, Delta operators, all those guys. There's there's that real like intensity there. And um, but this is a kind of job since it's an intelligence collection and they, they do, you know, essentially undercover missions. Um, you can't have somebody who's like super aggressive all the time. You need somebody who can be calm, cool and collected. And I, I can see that personality lending itself to the to this unit specifically. Yeah. Anytime you're dealing with the with the merger or that kind of union between intelligence community, i.e. CIA, and then the military arm, you know, it does take a different kind of nuanced approach. It takes intelligence analysts and gatherers, not just door kickers. Yeah. Let's jump into the book, The Unit. Uh, you wrote uh, Unit So Elite, even its name has been classified. It's gone by other names, Intelligence Support Activity, Task Force Orange. Mm-hmm. The Army of Northern Virginia, I thought was a cool nickname. <laughs> and uh, Titan Zeus, some have even said, could have been a nickname for this unit. But tell me how the book kind of opens. How does he define the unit, what it does, and what it takes to get into this unit? Yeah, I mean, he he's a little vague at times about exactly what the unit does. Because this book had to go through a DOD publication review. So they scrubbed it for like classified material. So some of that is a... A little vague. Uh, he talks about since the the author is a Egyptian uh, national who became a naturalized American citizen, he has a cultural background, ethnic background, the language capabilities. Um, so he did a lot of things like interrogating prisoners in Iraq. He writes about that. After clearance from the DoD. The unit describes surveillance missions and covert ops that over the years have prevented many terrorist attacks. Jack explains the history 
behind this fascinating covert unit. You know, this unit was created after the debacle at Desert One in 1980. Before that, there was an ad hoc intelligence group set up for that mission, the the rescue of the American hostages held in Tehran. I, I think the ad hoc unit may have been called like field operations group or something like that. But after everything kind of went sideways at Desert One, it was decided that they really needed to formalize this process of having a unit that does tactical intelligence. That's not something the CIA really does or specializes in. So the unit, you know, was designed in, in those early days to to really do the tactical intelligence piece for Delta Force or SEAL Team 6 so that they had all the information they would need for a hostage rescue mission. Over the years, that has evolved into a number of things. They do human intelligence. They also do signals intelligence, also strategic intelligence missions. So don't preclude the possibility that some of these guys are wearing plain clothes, walking around Eastern Europe doing stuff that has to do with countering Russia. All of that stuff is kind of on, on the table. Another vignette I guess I'll, I will give is that there have been guys from this unit going in and out of Ukraine during the war, and they are not directly doing things in the conflict, but they're training up the Ukrainians to use specific pieces of technology that they're then sent out. The Ukrainians go out to the front lines and do the job. And then the American soldiers will come back, you know, they'll rotate in and out as need be. So there's a lot of different things that this unit has done over the years and can do. And the author describes some of them in the book, operations in the Middle East and also in Africa, where they, during the war on terror, they realized that a lot of foreign fighters from the African continent were traveling into the Middle East to kill American soldiers in Iraq. So we started going into some of these different countries in Africa to try to identify where these, you know, these populations, how they're being radicalized and if we can do anything to prevent that. I don't think there are any countries specifically mentioned. One that seems it seems pretty obvious to me that he was in Kenya. Um, but you know, readers can can decide for themselves where they think he may have been. I love how you kind of paint that picture, too. They can be found in civilian clothes, blending into the local community. They can be doing all these things for surveillance in order to arm our action guys. You just said something that I found interesting. What's the difference between tactical and strategic intelligence? So strategic intelligence is a type of stuff that the CIA um, does with their, you know, as far as human intelligence or the NSA would do largely for um, signals intelligence. And that's sort of like the big picture stuff. Like, is Russia going to invade Ukraine? When are they going to invade? You know, those big pictures type of things. Tactical intelligence is more like, okay, where does this terrorist bed down at night? Okay, he's at this location. All right. Um, what is the terrain like around the building? What is the door made out of? Are there windows? Are there guards outside? Like, that's all tactical intelligence. So both are important, but, you know, the military previous to this unit being created didn't necessarily have an outfit that could go and gather that information. And two of the more unique things that I've been told about this unit over the years um, that makes them different than others is that they can conduct operations that are covert, clandestine, or just normal military operations. And also that their operators do a lot of the spying themselves. Unlike the CIA, 
where they recruit agents, foreign nationals, to go and they actually do the spying. And the American CIA operations officer or case officer really is like a case manager, like a social worker for these agents. And you manage them and you task them to do things. This unit is is known for being a little bit more hands-on um, with the intelligence gathering process. Another fun anecdote I can tell is a, a friend of mine was in the Balkans during the Bosnia War. And he was actually targeted for death by the IRGC. The Iranians wanted to kill him. And he found this out through several members of this unit who gathered the intelligence. And so because it, it came from American sources, it was the U.S. military um, gathered this intelligence. He knew it was completely legit. And that allowed him to evacuate himself out of uh, Sarajevo um, and escape before the IRGC could sweep him up. So, I mean, and there are many, many stories about this unit and some of the cool things that they've done. <laughs> and, and these are just a few. Oh, so cool. So at times, if they're doing intelligence gathering, they have to be close enough to the to the target, you know, as we call HVTs. Sometimes these guys are within earshot of the people that we're targeting in order to get the intelligence yes. and, and yes. hear conversations um, and... At times, um, one thing that I was actually surprised to see that it, it, it is in this book, he talks a little bit about the Internet cafes in Iraq. And uh, I, I, I knew that was going on, um, but I'd never seen it written about in a book. You know, he talks about going into Internet cafes that were serving intentionally or not. They were serving as hubs for terrorist networks because cell phones and social media was not where it is today. We're, we're going back to 2003, four, five, six, right? So internet cafes were definitely a thing. Um, and that was uh, a communications hub that terrorists were using. And so he talks about operators from this unit going in there and doing some things to the internet servers, you know? <laughs> um, so again, that's a, a, a uh, an example of how you have Americans actually doing the spying and the author of this book, I mean, again, because of his cultural and linguistic background, he was able to do things that like a guy that looks like me would never, ever get away with. Oh yeah. In fact, let's get to that. That's a really cool point about Adam Gamal being able to be involved in this unit. You think of these special forces, special operators, and you know, I've known a few Rangers. They're huge. A lot of them get the big hulking muscles and they, you know, just, they look like they're ready Rangers to just, strong. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like <laughs> you can see them kicking in doors and running towards the chopper and they got a gun in each arm. And it's like, yeah, that's exactly, you know, they look like Rambos. This guy does not look like that at all. Adam Gamal is a very, like you could put him in a crowd, give him the appropriate clothes and he'd blend right in. Talk to me about kind of Adam Gamal as a soldier. Yeah, I, I mean, I hope that you can talk to the man himself and, and hear it. But I mean, he describes himself as being five foot one and definitely not. I mean, people made fun of him because he was short or he was too small or whatever. I, I mean, that's kind of the point in a unit like that. Like this stuff served as an advantage to him that he was able to go things and do places and be unassuming. He served in the conventional army and then went to the selection course for this unit which was a, a really grueling process. And then he rose through the ranks and retired as a sergeant major, you know, from what I read in the book. Um, so he had a pretty incredible career doing things all over the world. And for what it's worth, I, I've heard through my own sources that, you know, this guy was well-regarded. He was a, a very serious guy who did very serious work in some <laughs> dangerous parts of the world. 
all five foot one of him. I think that's yeah, so cool. yeah. Um, he Is was it, like, and that's inter- that's interesting when we talk about diversity in the military, and it's like not. You know, diversity, yeah, you can see it as like political correctness or like, oh, we need to be more nice or whatever. But there's a very like tactical, pragmatic reason for diversity in organizations like this unit or within the CIA or even within the military as a whole to have those cultural that the people with that cultural fluency, with those language fluencies, um, people who can blend in in different parts of the world where, you know, I'm not blending in anywhere unless you want to infiltrate the IRA. And even if that even if you want to do that, the second I open my mouth, I'm, I'm screwed. So um, we, we need these people. We really do. And um, and yeah, the author talks about that quite a bit in the book. We've heard how this team executes the most covert missions in the military. My colleague Jack Murphy served in Special Forces and has only had rare glimpses of members of this elite team. And he described the extreme training operators must pass in order to be part of this covert missions unit. There are two phases, yeah, two parts of this selection course. One is rural and one is urban. I, I won't say exactly where they take place. Let's just say it's out west. You're out in the desert somewhere. Part of it involves, you know, kind of what you see in Ranger selection, SF selection, Delta Force selection. They give you a heavy rucksack and they have you land navigate. And the the reason why, I mean, yes, of course, we want to teach our soldiers land navigation, but that's also a tool that the assessors use to, um, it's a stressor, right? It's to put you under stress um, to hopefully simulate combat or combat conditions in some ways that you have to apply this technical skill while you're completely exhausted and you're tired and make it from point A to point B. And so it's used as a stressor. One of the things that I, I, as I understand it, makes this selection course a little bit different in each course is each selection, you know, the, the, the cadre they're selecting for that unit. So each is a little different in what they're looking for. Navy SEALs, obviously they're spending a lot of time in the water and buds because that's very important for that position. I've heard stories, and and Adam talks about it too in this book a bit, about how while you're under this type of duress and you're tired and everything else, there are tests in there to see how observant you are. Like, do you pay attention to detail? Um, So like one story someone told me once was like, you know, when you reach your land navigation point, the cadre like opened up a, a can of Coke. And then at the next point, They'll hand you a can of Coke and they'll say, open that can exactly the way you saw the cadre do it at the last point. And it's just a, it's a test you to see, like, are you observant? Are you are you looking or how's your memory? You know, and are you able to do this while you're exhausted? And I think Adam talks a little bit about stuff like that, where, like, you know, we want you to lay out your equipment this way or, or very specific things to see if you're like, can you pay attention to detail? Can you retain this sort of information that we're trying to uh, force feed you during the selection? They do that. And then they go to the urban phase. Again, he's a little vague about it, but it sounds like there's maybe they're starting to introduce them to what they would call tradecraft, which is the things you do to move around the environment without being detected um, by, you know, the adversary's counterintelligence and meet with sources and and conduct the operational acts of espionage that you would have to conduct um, as an operator in this case. So staying in like crummy hotel rooms and things like that. um, The author, Adam, 
describes at one point he, he was so exhausted, so tired, so dirty that a woman in this in the city actually uh, mistook him for a homeless man and tried to offer him some money. So like this poor guy, I mean, we got to help him out. And he he kept like refusing, like, I'm not homeless, please. And he doesn't know if she's a part of the scenario or not, because it's like one of these things like, you know, fight club. Is this a test? (laughs) Is this a test, sir? (laughs) This is not a test, (laughs) you know, uh, but no, that she, she was not part of the, the selection course. It was was really a, a civilian woman who, who felt bad for him. Another anecdote he talks about in the book is, um, he has to meet with a source like in a diner somewhere and the source orders like a drink or some food and then just leaves without paying and like sticks him with the bill. And he has like five, five dollars in his pocket. So it's like these kind of scenarios they're putting you in to like, see how you will react. You know, will you keep your cool or will you, will you throw a, a temper tantrum in the middle of a, a quote unquote operation? Right. So I guess there is a method to the madness. That is so cool. I've always loved your descriptions of the Q course or special <laughs> forces training. But when I read that they do this next level training or this next level testing in a rural and an urban environment, it brought me back to another guy who used to be on our team at, at Connecting Vets, was an intel analyst, uh, Army 101st Airborne, I think is what Matt was. But he also told me that there's one training in the urban thing where they'll drop you off they'll give you a picture of somebody you have to find. They'll give you seven bucks and say, we'll be back in two days or something. I forget the story. He was telling me how exactly it played out, but it was in a city so recognizable in America that they've played a Super Bowl there. And I didn't think that the military, you know, I hear about the Q course, I hear about Ranger training. That's all done on a military base. I think it's a trip that they've woven this kind of trade training Right into urban environments that are live going on with real civilians, like like the lady that's given him some spare change because she thought he was homeless. They don't do this on a base removed with character actors and other yeah. people in the army. They 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 do it right in the middle of the civilian world. There's a course. It used to be um, at the time it was called Jedburg that they put special forces guys through, and uh, that was that was done by contractors, and now that's that skill set has kind of been formalized inside special forces, so they don't contract it out anymore. Um, Jedburg was conducted in America in in rural and urban environments. The interesting thing was like the guys would travel under alias, and like the alias was backstopped. So if you're saying like I'm working for XYZ company, and you get pulled over by the cops or whatever. And they call up this company. Someone's going to answer the phone and say, hi, I'm Melinda at blah, blah, blah. I've heard some pretty funny stories about that, about things that happened on that course. Like one guy who was in the intercoastal waterways and uh, he ran into, um, he was out there doing his training. Like we're coming out here to infiltrate an area and meet with a source or something, but came across some police officers who were smuggling drugs out there. (laughs) There's another, there's actually a, a, British run course similar to it. And I, a friend of mine actually went to it and they, they did this training in Bangkok and the Thai special forces guys were like the opposing force. They were like the op four. And uh, my buddy actually, um, you know, you can rent like small aircraft and have the pilot fly you around. If you're a tourist, um, like, Hey, you see the sites. And he did that. And, And so he had to gather intelligence about this target in the middle of the city. So he hired the plane, the tourist plane to fly him. Yeah. Can you like take me a few circles around this area? And he's there with his camera. 
taking pictures. <laughs> so yeah, those are, those are cool exercises, you know, and they're getting guys to, you know, outside their comfort zone, think outside the box, so to speak, and, and improvise. Man. So cool. I can see that too. No, can you double back? I want that building over there. Why do you want that building? There's nothing yeah, worry interesting about, it, about that building. <laughs> no, I just, it's really cool. I want to get a picture of the bank again. Yeah. This book dives deep into some of the missions that he's gone on. Uh, the unit as it's called, cause it's so classified. We don't even know its real name. Um, talks about a lot about going to Africa. You'd, you'd mentioned that. Give me a little vignette about like the Africa ops in this book. Is there anything that stood out to you as just like, wow, that was interesting? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a huge topic. And I mean, special forces has been in Africa, you know, JSOC, the Delta force and seal team six guys have been in Africa quite a bit. Even the, the Ranger, uh, the Ranger reconnaissance company guys, they've been in Africa. The, those missions are a bit different than, you know, so, the stuff we were doing in Iraq and Afghanistan a lot of times, um, Somalia was probably the hottest one, and, and and I guess still is. Marsoc guys over there too. What this specific unit was doing over there was more of the the intelligence piece. Again, the the author's a little bit vague. I mean, he's he's clear about why they were there, but for the reasons I mentioned about the foreign fighter networks. But he, he, when he's in one country at one point, um, he talks about how he's heading into you know where he stayed at the time, his you know quote unquote safe house. Uh, wasn't so safe. He actually got like ambushed outside the gate and shot in the stomach. And um, the guys ran off. Um, he eventually got to a hospital in this country and like the bed they wheeled out was broken. So like they couldn't lower the bed to roll him on. So he had to like climb up it. The x-ray machine was broken. So then he has to get off the bed to go under the x-ray machine. Like, like the, it's, it's a, pretty third world situation that he describes. Um, and he, he really, I think he really believed that he was going to bleed out and die. Like this is it, <laughs> you know, Allah and his boys are coming down to get me, but you know, they, they did save his life. The bullet went through and through. Um, and he, he lost part of his intestine, I believe, but he, he not his kidney, thankfully. I heard another story about a guy in this unit who got ambushed coming. He got right off a plane in Beirut and got held, uh, held up at gunpoint and went and like tried to disarm the guy a round went off. He got injured and um, he, he self-evacuated self-treated and, and self-evacuated himself out of the country. But again, that's, that's frightening, man, that, you know, an operator got off the plane and immediately somebody tried to snatch him up. That implies like a real security failure somewhere, somewhere in the chain. I love looking behind the curtain into this dark world, you know, cause you just don't think any of that's going on. Like when I go to BWI and I'm flying away on vacation, I, you know, I never think for a second that somebody getting off one of these planes might have just, you know, been stepping onto American soil for the first time in six weeks and has just been doing crazy ops. No one even knows about finding bad guys that could bring end of the world type stuff. Uh, you know, imagine a lot of these guys work in pairs. Sometimes they work alone. And I mean, imagine how stressed out you would be doing like a six week mission. You know, maybe you're doing something to counter the Russians and you're, uh, you're undercover in Estonia walking around, you know, doing counter surveillance routes and, and trying to meet with, with a source 
or, you know, you're deployed to Yemen and you have to go in and gather targeting intelligence on a, on a terrorist um, that, you know, JSOC wants to hit. I mean, and then maintaining your cover through all of that and then getting on the plane, coming back home. I mean, th- these guys go through a lot of stress. And like I, I had uh, one guy who served in the unit told me that part of the problem that he had, and I think some of the other guys have too, is it, it becomes a question of like not knowing who you are. Like you've lived under so many different aliases. You, having this fear that when like you wake up in your home in Virginia but like, who am I today? Um, and that stuff starts to catch up with the guys after uh, if, if some of them have told me, you know, it catches up with them after a period of time. And then the other thing, too, is when you're working on these special access projects, let's just say theoretically, it's a it's a sap, only ver- a very small people. It's compartmentalized. Very few people are read on to the program. So like for the sake of this conversation, let's say 10 people are read on and assigned to this program. You know, of those 10, like maybe five are the logistics guys, the backside support guys. Then maybe like the others are like a couple pilots and a couple signals intelligence guys. Okay. And so you have to rotate these guys on and off. So let's say there's two crews. So realistically, it's probably five guys doing this mission at any one time. Imagine like how burned out and how stressed out you would get that they have a very, very small group of people running this mission over and over and over and over again, doing counter ISIS stuff or what, whatever the hell it was. So there, there's a propensity for these types of, you know, clandestine operations to burn people out very quickly. And it does happen. And, and, you know, this unit has had some suicides in it that really shocked the community. And they were guys who were good operators. And it's a very small group of people carrying that stress and carrying that burden. And inadvertently or not, I mean, their families end up carrying that burden too, because, yeah. you know, the, the, the wife is not, there's some BS cover story that they have to tell their, their spouse and she knows what's going on more or less, but you have to maintain that nonsense, even, even with your own family. And that does, that does a lot of damage to the family over, over a period of time. So Pour one out for these guys. They have a difficult job. They really do. No doubt. I mean, when we use the word hero, I, I, I hate how it's thrown around so loosely, but these guys, the members of the unit, uh, just absolute heroes and studs for being able to do this. Uh, we keep talking about guys. I, I noticed one little thing that, that uh, you shared with me about this is uh, in conducting some of this, this surveillance, you know, there's an integral role that some of these human intelligence soldiers are, and many of them are women because they can kind of yes. fit the mold and get into the society with ease and fluidity. Talk to me a little bit about his connection there that he had. Yeah, the, there there are women in this unit. Absolutely. There, there are a few points where he talks about how there are some courageous women in the unit and he talks about how um, he would go out in um, they'd go out in pairs so they you know, you could pose as your husband and wife or brother and sister or whatever the case may be, depending on the environment. And that just helps kind of lower your signature, because, again, like one guy who looks like he spends a lot of time in the weight room driving around all day, start raising some eyebrows eventually. But, you know, yeah, five foot one Egyptian guy driving around with his wife that does not raise nearly as many eyebrows. So it's, it's a, a form of camouflage, right? He mentioned this one female soldier. She was Hawaiian. So mm. had darker olive skin there. Yes. 
And then I would imagine she'd be what, like she'd have a burqa and she'd look completely localized and then he could look completely like a local and they could just blend. Nobody, like you'd said, be raising eyebrows, right, right, and a right. muscular guy. What is the MOS of the women that do this? Or what is their job description? I mean, do they go through the same qualifications? Some of them do. And I mean, I, again, I, I don't want to speak for the unit or, or, or get to uh, or speak. I, I don't want to speak beyond what I know either. But if they go through all of the same training, there's a, um, a MOS. I think it's called an AFI, an operator. And hmm. so if they went through all of that training, they would be an operator. But then, there are, of course, there are all sorts of support personnel, um, contracted personnel. All of these special ops units have a pretty robust support infrastructure as well. But I, I believe that there are female operators in the unit. Wow, that is so cool. In your time, in your travels, both, you know, Special Forces and Ranger, did you cross paths with women doing the valuable human intelligence work? What is it, they call uh, cultural support work? Did you ever see any of that? Uh, oh, well, the, the cultural support teams or the Marines, uh, they were called FET teams, I believe, female engagement teams. Um, definitely worked with them. A female intelligence uh, operator or soldier, I, I, I crossed paths with one at one point. But I mean, look, we were part of the same task force. I did not have a need to know whatever she was working on. So I couldn't tell you um, what, what, uh, what they had her doing. And this is where my Hollywood cinematic mind goes to like, now this is the kind of woman you could meet. And then like, she could be in the mall and then step into the restroom and change wig comes on eyelashes. Next thing you know, she's walking out of the restroom, a redhead, totally different personality. I, I, I would, like, I would not, I would not preclude that disguises you know it's well it's pretty well known and talked about the cia uses disguises to throw off surveillance so i mean what you're talking about is not completely out there only my story ends with me getting in the elevator with her she mistakes me for the bad yeah, guy we get, we get into the lambo together and, and drive away yeah that's the part that never happens for some reason <laughs> at least not to me snaps my arm in one direction while quietly holding back my screams by covering my mouth and then throwing me in a Land Rover in the parking garage. Yeah, that's how I see that ending. Yeah, you want the black hood, Phil, I know. <laughs> and that's where we'll leave it for this week. We're currently working through some back-channel communications of our own to have Adam Gamal and Kelly Kennedy on to share more details about this groundbreaking new book, The Unit. Until then... Follow Jack Murphy's reporting on ConnectingVets.com and on the X at JackMurphyRGR. I'm Navy vet Phil Briggs, and I'll talk to you again on the next episode of CBS Eye on Veterans. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. 
Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. Get one of the most successful broadcasts in television history on your schedule with the 60 Minutes podcast. Hard-hitting investigative reports, news and culture maker interviews and in-depth profiles are waiting for you in every episode. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.